0: Since the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day 2020, hundreds of thousands of people in all 50 states and across the world have joined multiracial, multigenerational rallies, marches, and protests. Activists and journalists cite the sustained action and diverse coalition of supporters as indicators of a possible sea change in the fight for racial justice. According to a Monmouth poll in early June, 76% of Americans consider racism and discrimination a big problem up from 51% in 2015. One of the voices leading this newly energized conversation around race is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, professor of history and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Kendi distinguishes between two forms of racism, segregationism and assimilationism. Historically,
2: there's been a debate within racist thought between segregationists and assimilationists. And really, we can understand that debate as a debate between, in a sense, nature and nurture within the racist debate. And so you had a segregationist stating that Black people were inferior by nature. And they were biologically, or even in, in our era, they'll say genetically, and therefore permanently inferior. And so they cannot be developed and civilized. Assimilationists have historically said that Black people are inferior by nurture, and so therefore it's their environment that is causing them to be inferior or deficient. Whether that environment is the environment of barbaric Africa, pathological African-American culture, or the environment of slavery, segregation, or poverty, it's the environment that is leading to their so-called behavioral Deficiencies. And so, because it's
0: the environment, we can change the environment in the way we can't change nature. More specifically, assimilationist racism presupposes that black environments need to be changed to model white culture, based on the implicit or explicit belief that black culture is fundamentally inferior to white culture. Assimilationism doesn't always show itself in such obvious ways as segregated schools or whites-only water fountains. But it's still racism. Welcome to Ministry of Ideas. I'm Zachary Davis. In this episode, we examine racism as manifested through assimilationism. We look at how Black leaders, past and present, have challenged racist assumptions about Black cultural and intellectual inferiority, and explore how to open up new forms of cultural engagement based on equality and mutual exchange. Any person of color in America today can tell you about the many ways they've been pressured to assimilate into white culture, such as adjusting their grammar and speech style to help them sound respectable, or choosing hairstyles and clothing that will be considered professional in predominantly white spaces. This kind of adjustment is often called code switching. One example of code switching lent social psychologist Claude M. Steele the title of his book Whistling Vivaldi which he describes in a 2013 Not in Our School video.
3: The book that I, I've written about this is Whistling Vivaldi, and it's taken from a story of an African-American, uh, he's, he's now an editorialist for the New York Times, Brent Staples, a uh, large African-American guy, and when he was uh, showed up for graduate school at the University of Chicago years ago and walks down the street dressed like a student and so on, he realizes that Uh, He's making whites uncomfortable, and they're avoiding eye contact and sometimes even crossing the street to stay out of his way. Um, And he realizes from their behavior that they're seeing him stereotypically. They're thinking of him as a possibly menacing African-American male on the south side of Chicago, and they're apprehensive, and they're moving away from him. So he's being seen through the lens of that stereotype. There's a huge social impact there of a... Uh, on on him and it's depressing to him. He writes about this in his his autobiography. Um, He eventually learns a little simple tactic which is that as he walks down the street if he whistles Beatles tunes and whistles Vivaldi, then he's seen completely differently. He's just seen as a as a a black graduate student at the University of Chicago and not as uh, a potentially menacing guy.
0: Today we hear thousands of similar stories about how minorities are pressured to channel what is coded as white culture, such as classical music by Vivaldi, to survive in America. The pressure to blend in, to assimilate to white culture, is a centuries-long struggle. Consider one particularly telling story of a Black woman named Jane Manning James. In 1842, Jane Manning James converted to the Mormon faith. She and her family walked from Connecticut to Illinois, where Jane joined the fledgling community and was even invited into the household of the Mormon prophet Joseph Smith. James could find a home among early Mormonism because early Mormonism was, in Kendi's terms, assimilationist, not segregationist. Mormon scripture taught that race was an external mark of one's ancestors' sins, rather than an essential quality of a person. This meant that Mormons believed that black and brown people could shed the racial legacy of their forefathers through righteous living. In fact, James had reason to believe that this promise extended to her personally. Here's Max Mueller, a religious studies professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.
4: We actually know James was promised that she could shed her blackness and become white. Hiram Smith was the patriarch of the church. And one of the duties of the patriarch of the church was to give patriarchal blessings, spiritual roadmaps given to Latter-day saints by elders, by patriarchs. So in her patriarchal blessing, when Hiram Smith lays his hands upon Jane Manning James in 1844, he, he pronounces, that Jane Manning James came down in the lineage of Canaan, the son of Ham. But, but, if Jane Manning James remained faithful to the gospel and proved her worthiness, Hiram told James, for he that changeth time and seasons and placed a mark upon your forehead, here the mark of Cain, uh, Hiram is referencing, can take it off and stamp upon you his own image. In other words, If Jane Manning James dedicates herself to the Mormon gospel, she can leave behind her blackness and God, Heavenly Father, would take the mark off her forehead, again, the mark of Cain, and stamp upon her his own image, right? Stamping upon her the stamp of whiteness of the original family.
0: In other words, James was promised that with sufficient dedication to the Mormon gospel, God would make her white again. She took this promise seriously. Many years later, James told a local newspaper, quote, I am white with the exception of the color of my skin. By remaining faithful to the church, James felt that she had earned her whiteness and the spiritual blessings available to white members things like a temple covenant and the sealing together of families. Unfortunately, James spent the rest of her adult life petitioning church leadership for the blessings promised her but always being denied those requests. Christianity was one way some 19th century African-Americans sought equality. Another was through the classical traditions of Greece and Rome. Starting in the late 1820s, free African-Americans in northern cities advocated for classical education for African-American students. Such an education, they argued, would prove students' intellectual competence and arm them to fight slavery and racism. The black abolitionist William Whipper, for example, said in 1828.
3: If we ever expect to see the influence of prejudice decrease and ourselves respected, it must be by the blessings of an enlightened education. It must be by being in possession of that classical knowledge.
0: A classical education, they believed, meant cultural capital and equal claims to American citizenship. Frederick Douglass showed the power of such an education by incorporating classical rhetoric in his powerful writing and public speeches, advocating for abolition and Black equality.
1: Frederick Douglass says reading Cicero and others gave him the language he needed to fight for our equality. Frederick Douglass used to spend hours in his library reading classics and writing um, and he started that as a slave. It gave him these phenomenal oratory skills. And he didn't use those oratory skills to just look like, you know, assimilate into white culture. You know, he used it to to fight in the abolitionist movements. My name is Dr. Anika Prather, and I am a adjunct faculty at Howard University in the classics department.
0: Dr. Anika Prather has studied the ways that Black American communities have read and used classical literature, especially in their struggle for survival and equality. In the later 19th century, as Jim Crow laws and pervasive lynching devastated African American communities, Black Americans continued to turn to education. One reason why African Americans and their advocates believed that a classical education would earn them respect and equality was that classical learning was a central pillar of white European and American high culture. South Carolina senator and slavery advocate John C. Calhoun once said that he would only believe that black people were human when he found one who knew Greek syntax. But African American educator and activist Fannie Jackson Coppin rejected the idea that the only value of classical education was assimilation to white culture. Here's what she said at the World's Congress of Representative Women in 1893.
1: Our idea of getting an education did not come out of wanting to imitate anyone, whatever. It grew out of the uneasiness and restlessness of the desires we felt within us. The desire to know, not just a little, but a great deal. We wanted to know how to calculate and eclipse to know what Hesiod and Livy thought. We wish to know the best thoughts of the best minds that lived with us.
0: Coppen didn't see the classics merely as a path to assimilation, but as a path to liberation. Another person who believed in liberation through the classics was the African American scholar and activist W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois was born in Massachusetts in 1868 and studied Greek and Latin in high school and college. In 1895, he became the first African-American to earn a PhD from Harvard. He went on to teach at Wilberforce University, University of Pennsylvania, and Atlanta University. His training and passion for the classics would affect his thinking and writing for the rest of his life. Ibram Kendi describes some of Du Bois' motivation. So
2: in 1903... uh prominent scholar by the name of W. B. Du Bois, uh, wrote an essay uh, calling for what he called the Talented Tenth, the, the Talented Tenth of, of African Americans to sort of lead the entire sort of race. And, and one of the things that he stated to substantiate this existence of, of the Talented Tenth, in other words, how did, the way he distinguished the Talented Tenth in that essay was to essentially state that this talented 10th had reached the heights of European culture. In other words, they had assimilated. And the bottom 90th had not assimilated, had not essentially, I should say, culturally became white. And, and so, what made the talented 10th of Black people superior to the bottom 90th was because they essentially had been able to reach the heights of European culture, literacy in Greek and Latin the knowledge of European history and literature, um, the speaking of the King's English and appreciating and, and, and being knowledgeable about European classical music, the sort of mannerisms of, of Euro-Americans being practiced by, by African-Americans, a sort of style of clothes, all of these different sort of measures of culture, uh, he was a sort of successor
0: Upholding Greek and Latin literature, European history, and classical music and art as the highest possible measures of culture, that can be a defining trait of assimilationist racism. But like Fanny Jackson Coppin, Du Bois saw something besides assimilationism and Eurocentrism in classical literature. He saw a radically different form of community. In his 1903 book, The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois ends one chapter with the following lines which Anika Prather reads for us.
1: I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not. Across the color line, I move arm in arm with Balzac and Dumas, where smiling men and welcoming women glide in gilded halls. From out the caves of evening that swing between the strong-limbed earth and the tracery of the stars, I summon Aristotle and Aurelius and what soul I will, and they come all graciously with no scorn nor condescension. So wed with truth, I dwell above the veil. Is this the life you grudge us, O knightly America? Is this the life you long to change in the dull red hideousness of Georgia? Are you so afraid, lest peering from this high pisca between Philistine and Amalekite recite the promised land?
0: In this passage, Du Bois describes the way that classical authors, unlike his contemporary white Americans, welcome him across the color line and above the veil, into a region where truth alone, not color or race, holds sway." The veil and the color line are terms Du Bois uses throughout The Souls of Black Folk to describe the racism and oppression in America that separates African Americans from whites. Du Bois saw the classics as affording Black Americans entry to a space where those racist structures were not in force. He also believed that study of the classics could help dismantle those structures in America by empowering Black students. In Of the Talented Tenth, Du Bois writes that African-American students could, quote, by study and thought and an appeal to the rich experience of the past, become men who lead their communities and raise and train them by force of precept and example, deep sympathy, and the inspiration of common blood and ideals. Studying exemplary historical figures would allow future generations of Black students to become exemplary leaders in their own right.
1: What is the talented 10th supposed to do? We are supposed to be using that to to illuminate these truths to the world, not just to our own people, but to people outside of your own community so that we all can come together working towards creating a more perfect union.
0: Du Bois was, of course, acutely aware of the role that the classics played in creating and sustaining white supremacy and racism in America. Just as Anika Prather is aware of the argument that Du Bois's embrace of classical education was really a form of assimilationism. But Prather believes that there is a better way of understanding Du Bois's position.
1: I know about what he said about the Townsend Tith, but I don't think we are truly understanding what he meant by it. Um, there are saying people will say he's elitist. He wants us to try to be um, like white people or as good as white people. And, and he's not saying that. He said it. He said, when I read these books, I kind of escaped this world where I'm made to feel inferior. Um, He's not saying the books make him equal in this world. He's recognizing that the problem is still there, but he can number one, escape and he can see his humanity. That's, that's, that's the beauty of the book. And this was so important. It's really kind of an emotional thing for me. Um, This was so important because here they are as an enslaved people, counted as three-fifths human, a space where they can be killed for no reason and no one's held accountable. And they can read these books, whether it be the Bible or Aristotle or Plato, and escape that space and see their
0: humanity. Throughout the 20th century, black artists have found liberating power in the classics just as Du Bois did, continuing to read, appropriate, subvert, and recreate the classics on their own terms and to their own ends. Black female writers like Toni Morrison and Rita Dove drew on mother figures from classical mythology in their work. Writers like Ralph Ellison and Derek Walcott and visual artists like Romare Bearden found Homer's Odyssey to be especially fertile inspirational ground, for expressing the experiences of the African diaspora. As the Afro-Caribbean poet Walcott pithily described it, the classical tradition was, quote, green manure under the green bananas.
1: A lot of the artists that we know and love, especially those of the past, had a classical education. I mean, Toni Morrison's minor was classics at at Howard University. And um, I look at Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, she was well-versed in the classics. She was an archaeologist. I mean... She definitely delved into the past, in the past texts. Um, and they used it to elevate our people. But I don't, I don't know if any of them were intentionally saying, I'm going to use classics to show how smart I am. I'm going to insert this in this text just to prove it. Or I'm going to use classics to show that we should all read classics. I think because of the education they had, it was just a part of their language. It was a part of their literacy.
0: Black engagement with the classics does not need to be about assimilating in the sense of conforming to a superior culture or striving to ingratiate oneself with the dominant group. It can be about using the classics in service of Black culture to enrich and develop Black artistic traditions. In fact, this kind of self-empowering engagement may be the most powerful tool against assimilationist racism. One reason this alternative form of cultural engagement and appropriation is so necessary is that assimilationist racism is pervasive in America, sometimes in what appears to be civil rights victories. In 1954, in the case of Brown v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court ruled that laws enforcing racial segregation of schools were unconstitutional. This ruling was certainly a blow to segregationist forms of racism that sought to keep Black children out of white schools. But the decision also revealed a belief that Black children could only flourish by assimilating to white educational standards and practices. Ibram Kendi explains.
2: Most people, when they think of the Brown v. Board of Education, which decision, which classified uh, Jim Crow segregation in schools as as unconstitutional, the assumption that I think people have is that the court, the Supreme Court, struck down uh, segregated schools as unconstitutional because they realized that those schools were not equal in other words that separate but equal had been a lie but that's actually not why they ruled in as the way they ruled the um chief justice warren found that the schools were equal or being equalized
0: according to the courts the problem was not that kansas schools were unequal justice warren stated explicitly that the state's black and white schools were evenly matched in buildings, curriculum, teacher salaries, and qualification. So what, then, did Justice Warren see as the problem?
2: What he found as the problem was that the Negro school was essentially retarding the intellectual growth of black children. That is what he found as the problem, and why he found that segregated schools were unconstitutional. He did not say anything about the white school retarding the intellectual ability of white children. And, and that's partly why, in, in response to the Brown decision, the busing movement emerged, which essentially, in most cases meant that black children in supposedly inferior schools were going to be bused to um, supposedly superior white schools. It went one way. To say that inherently a black school is going to be inferior to any white school, no matter what, even if they have equal resources, is a racist idea.
0: According to Justice Warren, no matter how equitable their resources or outcomes, simply by virtue of being segregated, black schools would always be inferior. Black children would suffer simply because their schools were composed entirely of black students. This could only be true if there is something inherently inferior about an all-black school. As Kendi points out, that's deeply racist logic. Moreover, Justice Warren's proposed solution also manifested an assimilationist racism. He assumed that black students needed to assimilate into white culture for their own good. For its entire history, white culture has functioned as the dominant form of culture in America. Prominent religious leaders, actors, business people, politicians, professors, scientists, and authors all tend to be predominantly white. There are encouraging signs that this is beginning to change, and in some cultural areas, such as sports or music, there is greater representation of racial minorities. Still, many aspects of American culture signal, explicitly or implicitly, that to be successful or influential or worthy of public attention, you have to be white— Or at least act white.
2: One of the essential features of white racism has been to say that not only is our beauty superior, not only is our culture superior, not only is our literature superior, but it is human. In other words, we don't practice white culture, we practice culture. We don't um, read white literature, we read literature. We're not reading up on white history, we're reading up on history. Understanding it in that way, essentially it standardizes it um, and then measures others from that standard and then essentially says to others, in order to be human, you have to be white.
0: Talk of separate but equal was used to disguise and legitimate often unequal forms of treatment for blacks and for whites and was motivated by segregationist racism. But Kendi believes that this equation of white culture with human culture eradicates something else that actually is true. The idea that cultures can be different but equal.
2: I think that you can recognize difference as equal. Assimilationists typically do not. Assimilationists want to create one way of knowing and being and looking in the world. And that's what they consider to be equality. When when Black people are, if somehow possible, looking the same acting the same way, worshiping the same way, talking and feeding themselves in the same way, they viewed that as equality, that sameness. And which essentially means that sameness ultimately becomes white culture and the ways of white people. Um, and which essentially means that the ways of black people must be eradicated, that the cultures of, of black people must be eradicated. That is what they see for assimilationists as their goal, because they view those cultures as inferior.
0: In 2008, Barack Obama became the first black president of the United States. But Obama's presidency arguably reinforced assimilationist views about black cultural inferiority.
3: Here, here's my attitude. Uh, you know, I think passing a law mm-hmm. about people wearing sagging pants is a waste of time. Having said that... Mm-hmm. Brothers should pull up their pants. Just pull up their pants. You know, uh, you're walking by your mother, your grandmother, and your underwear is showing. What's wrong with that? Come on. You don't have to pass a law. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean folks can't have some sense.
0: This is Obama in a 2008 interview with MTV. In February 2019, at a town hall with black youth in Oakland, California, Obama again took aim at fashion choices culturally coded as black, seeing them not as a culturally specific fashion choice, but as something inherently disrespectful.
3: I I mean, let let, let me say this. Like, if you are really confident about your financial situation, you probably are not going to be wearing an eight-pound chain around your neck. Because you know, oh, I got bank. I don't have to show you how much I got. I feel good.
0: It was comments like these that drew criticism of Obama from African-American journalists. Here's Atlantic writer Tanahasi Coates in a CBS interview in 2017.
4: I did not always like the way he addressed African Americans. I thought that there was a um, a rhetoric of um, (laughs) what people term as respectability politics. That is, that African Americans, because of some aspect of their behaviors, uh, bear some responsibility for the fact that there are huge gaps, huge socioeconomic gaps between the black community, and the rest of the country. Um, Not only do I not believe that, I don't believe it's appropriate for the president of the United States to say that.
0: Coates picked up on what was only implicit in President Obama's remarks, the suggestion that black people should quit dressing in stereotypically black ways. In both these examples, Obama seemed to be telling black Americans, you haven't assimilated enough. It's actually not surprising to find President Obama echoing assimilationist rhetoric, since Obama is himself a product of assimilation. He may have been the first African-American president, but Kendi would point out that many Americans were comfortable with a black president only because he was raised by white family members, studied at Harvard, and didn't use black vernacular speech patterns. The highest elected office in the United States of America may no longer be segregated, but it remains subject in every way to assimilation. If even the presidency is shaped by racist strains of assimilationism, that's all the more reason to find an alternative model, an empowering model, for thinking about cross-cultural engagement. Black engagement with the classics can provide one such model. Anika Prather explains that even ta Coates, with his firm rejection of assimilationism, Finds valuable tools in classical myth.
1: Well, I just recently read um, "Between the World and Me" by Ta Nehisi Coates, which was phenomenal. But like in the first couple of chapters, he's talking about Prometheus. You know, he makes a quote about you know our heritage. Unfortunately, our heritage is just as much African as it as it, as it is the, is the West. And I think he's saying it's because we got to survive here. So the man has read the classics, you know. Even and so, if, if if you think Ta Nehisi is is trying to assimilate, then something's wrong with your perception. Because I think he's very clear that he's clearly not trying to do that. But he's using his words, the literacy he's gained. He's an avid reader and researcher to, to, to be a, a, a voice for us.
0: Today, Black students and faculty in the classics are striving to push the conceptual boundaries of the field and to use the classics in the ongoing struggle for racial equality. Professor Shelley Haley, one of today's most prominent Black classicists, is president-elect of the Society for Classics Studies, the SCS, which this year issued a statement supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, and organized conference workshops on diversity and inclusivity in the classics. The 2019 SCS conference featured panels on social justice and Black classicism, organized by a group called EOS, which seeks to promote the study of African engagement with the classics and combat racist and reductive interpretations of the classical past. Many groups and blogs with similar commitments to a more inclusive classics community have emerged in recent years, such as Pharos, Eidolon, and Classics at the Intersections. As these projects demonstrate, studying classics as a Black academic need not manifest assimilationism. It can be an act of resistance, an anti-racist act, in and of itself. These academics enter into a sometimes unwelcoming environment, not to assimilate to a, quote, superior culture, but to pursue their own individual passions, to educate the public about race, and to help make the field more inviting to other people of color. Anika Prather herself has seen the effect it can have when these texts are made newly open.
1: One of my students, he was a Black male, I guess he was about 16, and he said, one of the things I noticed back then is, at first I thought they were just a bunch of books for white people but I realized that these were books about myself. And they really are. So you take that, along with Bearden's work, and then Odysseus, right? And we see it's all of our story.
0: This is why Black engagement with the classics provides a valuable model for how to engage with other canons and cultures. Black scholars and activists use classical literature to empower themselves and others, and to speak for their communities across dividing lines.
1: If we look back at Martin Luther King, I think his effort in fighting was very diverse. He was trying to reach everyone. James Baldwin, I remember watching James Baldwin and him kind of fussing, saying, I don't know why people always want to talk to white people. Like, (laughs) you know, but, you know, the truth is because he had the words, the way he articulates, right? I mean, he was able to reach people outside of his community to see the plight of what we're going through. Um, and I believe that came from his classical training, his classical influence that happened very naturally. There's so much evidence to show that to to, to get, provide a classical education to Black students is not teaching assimilation. It's not going to make them forget their heritage. It's not going to make them to not want to fight for our people. In fact, I am finding that the more people I read about it, the more they're driven to use it to fight. But then we also want to use it to create a bridge.
0: In other words... The classics can be a connection between communities and a weapon in the fight against racism. The activist and scholar Angela Davis said that, In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. Kendi agrees and explains the idea this way. One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. The good news, as Kendi writes in his book, is that Quote, racist and anti racist are not fixed identities. We can be racist one minute and an anti racist the next. What we say about race, what we do about race in each moment determines what, not who, we are. Practicing anti racism is a lifelong effort, with the goal a world in which we are all recognized as fully human. Recognizing and rethinking the casual, nearly invisible assumptions of assimilationism is one way of being an anti-racist. We can identify and close down those culturally transmitted beliefs about whose experiences count as mainstream, or normal, or even human. We can learn about different cultures, and recognize cultural difference, instead of assuming cultural inferiority. But we need to recognize, too, the desire and the need for cultural exchange— What does this look like in its best possible form? It's not requiring every college student to learn classical authors and making those the only authors we require. It's making classical studies open to every person who wants to enter the field and making other fields of study just as open, teaching authors like W.E.B. Du Bois, Derek Walcott, and Tanahasi Coates, as well as authors like Homer and Cicero. It's not about hierarchy, it's about access, When Black Americans and members of other minority groups have full access to every cultural space that they might want to enter, and equally the choice to enter some cultural spaces and not others, then we'll be moving closer to an anti-racist society.
2: An anti-racist would say that every sort of culture um, should be viewed as on the same level, because we can't assess other cultures from our own cultural standard, and that you can have an equality of difference. In the the way, you know, you can have two teams running completely different offenses, and an analyst will say, you know what, those offenses are equal in terms of their effectiveness and and output and even deficiencies. And and so I think that that's how an anti-racist would think
0: about it. We can be different, but still equal. Because every person and every culture has gifts. Gifts that we can learn from, gifts that we can celebrate, and gifts that we can share with one another. This episode was produced by Mike Berkey and Alia Benner. Voice acting support provided by Heather McCletchy-Leader and James Jones. Ministry of Ideas is produced at Harvard Divinity School. It is produced by Nick Anderson, me, Zachary Davis, and Maria Devlin-McNair. Sound design and music is by Steve LaRosa. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support us by sharing the show with your friends, subscribing, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information, visit our website at ministryofideas.org. You can connect with us in a few different places. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we're at Ministry of Ideas. You can also email us at Zachary at Ideas.org. Ministry of Ideas is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of our shows at HubSpokeAudio.org. Today, I want to tell you about a great episode of the Hub & Spoke podcast, Soonish. American Reckoning, from host Wade Roush is a deep and powerful investigation of the forces behind American polarization and what can plausibly be done about it. It's an incredibly important story and well worth listening to. Learn more at soonishpodcast.org. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.